What I am planning to do, as uh, Nathaniel was mentioning, is uh, to give some historical perspectives on this particular uh, spiritual moral problem, um, and then to talk about the way that some contemporary folks have uh, thought about it. Um, I'll plug a couple things uh, that we can discuss further in the uh, uh, conversation afterwards uh, about the way that this has been understood in other disciplines. And so um, hopefully we'll have a, a really rich conversation. I think this is a fascinating topic. Um, and it's fascinating for a variety of reasons uh, because a lot of really interesting people have written on it and almost everybody that's written on it is like, this is kind of this bizarre complicated thing that all of us kind of know and understand, but it's really hard to explain exactly what's going on. And um, I think that these kinds of conversations are uh, enjoyable. And so what I'll do first is to talk a bit about um, the origins of this concept in the Christian tradition in the Desert Fathers. Um, and then I'll talk a little bit about Thomas Aquinas's uh, amplification of it. And then I'll talk about a couple contemporary folks who are taking this notion and identifying it in broader cultural trends. Um, and then I thought I'd give some advice that comes from these figures on what to do about this. And then we can talk uh, further and see where the conversation takes us. Um, and so I uh, sent to Nathaniel a PDF of Evagrius's book, The Practicos, um, which is a book, um, if any of you have read um, Wittgenstein's uh, Tractatus, which is a, a series of numbered propositions, this book is kind of like that, but about prayer. So it's kind of a, a really interesting structural similarity, but a very different kind of topic. And so it's little paragraphs here and there about thoughts that the monks had and uh, were the experiences they had dealing with uh, particular temptations. Um, and Sadia is one of those. Um, and so if you know much about these guys uh, and women, uh, they were monks uh, who lived in the desert in Egypt in the fourth and fifth centuries. Uh, so long ago, uh, but they're um, advice is actually really contemporary <laughs> in really compelling ways. Um, and so what their goal was as a tradition is they were after theosis. They, were, they wanted to become like God through uh, growing in the virtues, through spiritual practices like contemplative prayer and fasting and things. Um, and imitating Christ who were in the middle of Lent, uh, Jesus went into the desert for 40 days. These monks say, well, we'll do that for our, our existence, our lives moving forward in the desert, uh, praying, contemplating God, trying to overcome the demons that were uh, tempting them as well as the bad thoughts that they uh, came to. And so this is the origin in some ways of the seven deadly sins tradition. Uh, the uh, Desert Fathers distinguish actually eight Thoughts, they call them both thoughts and demons. So if you read any of the Evagoras, you'll that might have been somewhat confusing. How is it a thought and a demon? Uh, but the there were the familiar thoughts of gluttony, uh, lust, sexual impurity, uh, greed, um, anger, vainglory, pride. Uh, they had another notion of sadness as well as uh, acedia. Sometimes they pronounce it acadia, so you'll hear it a variety of different ways. Um, and the later tradition uh, adapts these eight into seven. It, they merge sadness with acedia. They merge vainglory with pride. And that's Gregory the Great that gives us the famous uh, seven deadly sins. But it actually comes from this uh, particular tradition. 
Um, and what's interesting about it, I think, is that so much of later Christian theology has thought of something like pride or lust, uh, or depending on your era, greed or <laughs> laziness or whatever, as the worst of all sins. But uh, a monk like Evagrius thought Acadia was the worst. Um, and so I wanted to just talk to you a little bit about why he thought that, um, and then to see uh, some of the ways in which that unfolded. And so if any of you had a chance to read it, it's paragraph 12 of the Practicos. Um, and I just wanted to go through some of the description uh, for those who hadn't read it, uh, because it's actually quite interesting. He says, the demon of Asadia, also called the noonday demon, uh, is the one that causes the most serious trouble of all. He says he presses his attack upon the monk from about 10 in the morning until about two in the afternoon. We all know the lethargy of the middle of the day. And so this was a big deal for them. The, uh, so 10 in the morning, two in the afternoon. And it causes six things, really. The first is that it makes it seem like the sun doesn't move. Um, so they feel really bored. Time is at a standstill. There's this... Uh, you're in the heat, and it just seems to go on uh, forever and ever and ever. Um, so that's the first of the effects. And then the next thing that Asadia does is um, it instills in the heart of the monk a hatred uh, for the place. So a hatred for the life in the desert. Um, it instills hatred for the labor that was attendant to the uh, monastic life. Um, so there's the boredom, there's the hatred side. Um, then I'm skipping down a little bit. Uh, the demon also drives him along to desire other places. So to think about other things, places where you could go to more easily get life's necessities, uh, find work that is fulfilling and gives you money, and you can have your nice uh, villa in the hills and uh, eat all the grapes and drink all the wine that you want. Um, so you're constantly thinking about how good life would be somewhere else. And then the fourth thing that it does um, is uh, it, uh, whoops, I, sorry, I skipped one. No, yeah. So the, the <laughs> charities departed from the brethren. Sorry, I skipped down too far. Uh, so right before you desire other places, you start to realize that um, charity's gone. My monk friends aren't uh, here to encourage me. It feels like love is gone. Uh, life doesn't seem to have the meaning that I once associated with it. Um, so you have the hatred of the life. There's the absence of charity, the desire to move on to other places. Um, then you start to think about your memories, uh, how life used to be where I was living in the city and I had friends and I could eat more than one meal a day and I could have more than just a, a little square of bread and some water. Um, and then the final thing that Sadia does is to uh, bring to, before the mind uh, a real desire to just get out of there, to forsake yourself, to drop out of the fight, to leave the monastic life behind. Um, and a lot of that is, uh, as I mentioned before, that when the goal is theosis, the goal is to become like God through contemplation, through prayer. And if you've come to this realization that you just got to get out of there, it's because you realize you actually can't do that. You can't contemplate, you can't sit, you can't focus because your mind is constantly on all these other things. Um, and so this is one of the reasons why I think it's a great topic for talking about attention and some of the challenges in contemporary life. And so that's Evagrius. Um, and so one of the things that you can think about with him is it's a kind of maximalist description. 
so he says it's this demon. It gets you in the middle of the day, and it does all of this different stuff. It makes you bored. It makes you hate your life. It makes you feel like you're discouraged, and there's no love. There's no charity anywhere. It gives you a strong desire to get out of there, to wander, seek distractions. Uh, he's got this great little line about popping out of your cell and looking to see if another brother is around. And uh, I don't know if you've ever tried to write a paper or something in, in the library at finals time. Like, everybody does this. <laughs> Who's on a break right now that would enjoy a conversation? Um, and so you're, you, you just want some sort of stimulation, some distraction. And you might think about, oh, it'd be nice to go and get a coffee or think, oh, gosh, what have I done with my life? It's so much better if I was somewhere else. And then you can't do what you decided to do in becoming a monk. You can't contemplate God. So this is why he thought this was the most serious problem. It sort of ends the monastic vocation. Other thoughts might uh, cause you to want more food or more stuff or to have sex, all of which were not on the cards for um, monks. But this one attacked basically everything about what they were up to. And so this is why Evagoras thinks this is the most uh, serious problem. And so some of the unfolding conversation about it, and I'm happy we can talk about Evagoras more, but I wanna make sure I uh, get out some of the problems uh, that uh, later traditions of thought within the Christian uh, tradition have tried to address. Um, he labels this one thing in ways that seem to be contradictory. It's one of the things that's most fascinating about this because there's a way in which you can see how it all fits together. But later theologians have thought that maybe he's doing too much in this particular description and have tried to break apart this idea into several different kinds of problems. Um, so, for example, you might think of like, how can something make me both bored and hateful? <laughs> how can it make me both sort of lazy and I don't want to do anything because I don't want to work anymore, but I also am just constantly wanting to be busy? I, so how can it be both of those things? Um, how can I be apathetic and think that there's nothing of value as well as really desirous of something that would be fulfilling? Um, it, those seem to be some conceptual puzzles. There's a logic to this that I think we'll start to see maybe in a bit more detail when we talk about Thomas Aquinas, um, because he goes into a whole lot more detail. If you've ever read Aquinas, you understand that that's, that's his way of operating. Evagrius gives us this pithy little description, and we're supposed to chew on it and sort of figure out where this is evident in our lives. Um, he doesn't do much of the conceptual analysis, at least in the comparison to someone like Aquinas who writes 6,000 pages. <laughs> um, and so what we get here is um, contemporary scholars, some will say that, well, what Evagrius has really done is made boredom a sin. Um, and well, when you're living in the desert and there's nothing to do, obviously you'd be bored. Um, and so why make it a sin? Why not just see this as your body wanting to get out of there? Um, other people have seen this as a kind of initial understanding of what we now clinically refer to as depression or a kind of mental disorder, that you're, nothing seems to be worthwhile. You can't really find any stimulation. There's nothing that's satisfying. And so there are conversations about that in, with respect to this. And some of this, I think, is because of the complexity conceptually that he is dealing with. Um, and so somewhat quickly, what we find in the tradition is later monks simplify things. 
And John Cashin, if you've ever read John Cashin, uh, he separates sadness and asadia. Um, and he says that asadia is kind of like sadness. But what it really is, um, is your heart is weary and anxious so that you don't want to work. You don't want to do anything anymore. Um, and so he really stresses more of the laziness dimension of this. Um, it, it, you, you can't act at all. Um, or if you do, you only do it to make yourself feel better. You don't do it because you actually care about somebody else and you want to serve them. You actually do it because, uh, it, wow, I feel so much better having done that. It uh, doesn't matter that I was kind to Nathaniel. Boy, I'm, I'm really glad that I feel good. But, and for a monk, when life is about prayer and contemplation of God and service to your neighbor, you can see how that you're not actually serving. Um, and so this is what John Cashin was uh, upset about. Um, and one of the challenges, I think, with John Cashin's simplification, it it's definitely cuts through. You don't have this. Um, how can seemingly contradictory things come from this same problem? It has a very clear focus. But one of the issues with Cashin and his account, and one of the reasons why I think Evagrius is fun to wrestle with, is that if you tell somebody who's feeling anxious and weary to work, that can actually reinforce those feelings of anxiety and weariness. Um, this is one of the ways in which this kind of concept comes into more contemporary conversations. Um, when we live, especially now, in a culture that's totally ordered to productivity, and you got to produce, produce, produce to have value. And if the only way to get over feeling like you don't have value is to produce, when the way that you don't feel like you have value is because you don't feel like you're producing enough, <laughs> you, you are sort of stuck. Um, and this kind of pressure to work um, doesn't, in some ways, have some of the uniqueness of, of Agrius is, well, I'm sort of bored, but I'm also kind of wanting to do everything. And I sort of don't like any of this, but I also want to find something that's fulfilling. Um, and there's something I think more psychologically rich about, or suggestive maybe is a better word, uh, in Evagrius's discussion. And just as an aside, we can talk about this later if we want to do so. The um, later Christian tradition um, tends to focus on asadia in uh, re relation to sloth, laziness, um, following more Cashin's idea. And some of the psychological components of Evagrius's discussion get taken up more in psychological literature that's ordered to melancholy. So you have laziness or melancholy as concepts uh, moving forward. And this comes up in um, like Weber's discussion of the Protestant work ethic, where laziness is the chief problem and you've got to just work. And because if you're not, you're not glorifying God. So these kinds of concepts actually do come up in very different uh, theological traditions centuries later. Um, and there's often this interplay of how does our psychological sadness, sorrow, melancholy fit with this notion of work and engagement and satisfaction through uh, exercising our agency in various ways. And so this one concept of Asadia gets all of that out onto the table <laughs> in a way that uh, is rich, I think, for conversation. And so uh, that is, in some ways, a whirlwind tour of uh, two early discussions of this notion of Asadia. And hopefully there'll be some uh, inquiry. Uh, if you all want to talk about those guys a bit more, we can. Um, but I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about Thomas Aquinas, um, because in some ways, like, if, like he always does, if you're familiar with him, 
Uh, he's very engaged in conversations with his predecessors, uh, and he often tries to bring them together to show how they can be agreeing in ways uh, when it seems like they're uh, disagreeing. And so he shows a, a very interesting uh, account here of uh, Asadia. And what he does is uh, he picks up uh, with Evagrius's notion that this is really a form of sorrow. So it's not really about laziness. Uh, it's a kind of sorrow, but it's a kind of sorrow that can make you resist doing anything good. And so he's wanting to bring Evagrius and Cassian together in a particular way. Um, and so uh, Aquinas defines Asadia as sorrow at spiritual good. And what he means by that is um, it's a particular kind of vice that uh, makes you sorrow ra rather than rejoice at the goodness of charity. So you end up sorrowing at God and you end up sorrowing at your uh, participation or enjoyment in God's blessings. And if you know much about Aquinas, charity is really important. <laughs> it's the chief of the theological virtues. It's what brings us to union with God. And uh, Aquinas's whole theology really is about bringing us to this union that God gives us in the grace of charity to, in which we respond to it by living in a way that actually fits this grace, developing the virtues, imitating Christ, um, serving others, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so the problem with Asadia for Aquinas is it causes you to sorrow at all of that. And because you feel sorrowful, you resist doing anything good. And so, uh, I don't think I mentioned this, but charity, one of its effects is to make you uh, zealous uh, in, a, in a good way. <laughs> we usually talk about a zealot as someone who's kind of a fringe lunatic. But what, what he means by zeal is that you genuinely care about others and you want something good for them so that you do it. Um, and what Asadia does is it makes you unable to feel that. You have, you have no zeal. You don't want to do anything good to benefit anybody. Uh, and I'll explain sort of how that works uh, here in a bit. Um, but so charity unites us to God in friendship. It's meant to make us joyful and merciful and peaceful. And uh, he uses this language that you do good for others with ease and with pleasure. It just like this is what you want to do. You want to help. You want to serve. Not because it makes you feel good but because it's actually just what you want to do. <laughs> you want to benefit others because you love them. Um, and that's part of your flourishing too on this account. Um, and so this is the, the heart of Aquinas's ethics in a lot of ways. And so what Asadia does in attacking joy, uh, you can't rejoice in any of them. And so you feel a kind of sorrow. And I need to, be, need to say a little bit more here because uh, Aquinas distinguishes the emotion of sorrow from the vice of Asadia, which is excessive sorrow or sorrow at the wrong things. Um, and so he thinks that um, principally, most of us in life are after joy and we don't want sorrow. 
This is the way a lot of uh, uh, later traditions talk about pleasure versus pain. It's the same sort of distinction. The, uh, joy is our enjoyment of the good that we perceive in somebody or something or in God or in the blessings that we've received. We rejoice in it because it's so good. We want to be with it. We, we want to enjoy it. We want good things to happen to people that we love. It's a very common thing. Um, if you've ever uh, been around a mom, if somebody does wrong to their kid and the mom gets kind of <laughs> testy about it because she wants the kid to, 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 to not just survive, but to flourish. You want good things to happen to them. Um, and so we want to enjoy the good and we want to avoid the things that cause pain or sorrow. And Aquinas thinks internal sorrow causes more pain than anything else. And so we, we want to avoid internal sorrow above all things, um, because what it does is it overwhelms us. When we feel internal sorrow, we might withdraw. We might withdraw into ourselves or withdraw from the world, shut everybody out. Uh, I have little kids, and so a lot of my examples at the moment are with little kids. But when they're upset, they're often like, leave me alone. And they don't actually want that because then they'll come and talk to you and need a hug and a snuggle. But at the time, they're, they like they shut everything out. Uh, sorrow does that. And if we're made for fellowship with God and our neighbor, withdrawing away is a shutting off of our nature in some ways, uh, which is one of the reasons why Aquinas thinks we shun this kind of sorrow. Um, we can also get really weighted down. Um, sorrow can feel like a burden. It's just kind of crushing us, pushing us down. Uh, it can make us lose hope. We don't think that anything can, good can come of this. Um, nothing can get us out. Um, and we don't think as clearly because we are overwhelmed with this feeling of sorrow. And um, interestingly enough, Aquinas says that sorrow, this kind of thing, um, maybe not in really excessive forms, but sorrow is perfectly appropriate in a lot of situations. And so he's not trying to say that it's always bad. So, for example, it's good to feel sorrow when you've done something that hurts a friend. <laughs> if you tell a lie and the relationship fractures, you feel sorrow for it. And that's actually a good thing. If you don't, then there's something wrong about that. You don't feel badly. And so there's a sense in which this kind of sorrow is a natural occurrence that actually might be, in that kind of case, a good thing. Um, it's appropriate to feel sorrow, as I mentioned before, that when uh, something is wrong that's done to someone that you love or someone that you see, it does make us feel bad. And that's appropriate because this is kind of an emotional response to negative situations and stimuli that actually get us to, can get us to do things that are positive as correctives. Um, and Aquinas says that it's actually appropriate to feel a kind of moderate sorrow um, that we don't enjoy all of God's blessings right now. So life with all of its changes and uh, struggles and suffering, uh, glory is delayed, he says, and we want it right now. <laughs> and so it's appropriate to feel kind of like, gosh, it'd be so much better if God's kingdom were here and God was reigning and all of this bad stuff wouldn't happen uh, and that we'd actually get to see God face to face and flourish. Wouldn't that be better? We're, we're kind of feeling sorrow because that's uh, not here right now. And so Aquinas says that these kinds of forms of sorrow are, are perfectly fine. Um, and actually, they might be positive things in particular ways, because if you don't feel sorrow for certain things, then things are a problem. You should feel sorrow so that you don't do things that cause it uh, by lying and hurting your friends. Um, it actually is helpful for everybody <laughs> if we avoid that kind of sorrow by avoiding the bad behavior. 
But he says that there's a bad kind of sorrow. And um, one of the bad kinds is an excessive sorrow, he says, at God's blessings, where we can't see the goodness of them anymore. Um, I, the, it's not that, boy, it'd be great if I had more, uh, like a richer prayer life, or if I had friends that were encouraging me more to uh, maturity. It's not that kind of sorrow. He says, when you get excessive sorrow, it's like, boy, the friend that I have that tries to help me become better, I don't really care about that relationship. It just is like, it, it makes me sorrowful. I'm not feeling the, uh, the need to continue on with it anymore. Um, or it, we can't really see the goodness in the things that God has given us. Um, we can't see the goodness in our job. Uh, we can't see the goodness in where we're living. This is kind of picking up Evagoras's language. You hate your life. You hate your place. These don't feel like blessings anymore. They feel like stuff that, gosh, it's not that you would want it to be better or to improve it. It's like you can't even see the goodness in what you have. And he thinks that's a problem because creation is good. <laughs> and we need to enjoy it for what it is. Um, if we enjoy it too much, that's a problem. If we don't enjoy it enough, that's also a, a different kind of problem. And this is one of the dimensions of sorrow here. The, the worst form of sorrow at all, or of all, he thinks, is direct sorrow at God. Uh, and the reason he says this is that God is, on his account, goodness itself. God is supreme beauty, supreme truth. Uh, the being in whom all of our desires find their completion and rest. And so if we sorrow at that, we can't actually recognize goodness at all. We're actually construing pure good as evil. And so what we're doing is actually twisting in our minds an assessment of what's good. And so you can see how the excessive sorrow at God's blessings is a twisting so that you can't see the goodness there. And an excessive or sorrow at all uh, at goodness itself <laughs> rather than joy. Uh, so basically, Aquinas' thought is that we're made for union with God. We're made in God's image for fellowship. And if being presented with God's goodness, we're like, oh, gross. Uh, he uses the words of horror and detestation. <laughs> so pretty strong words. So if you if you feel horror at goodness itself, he's like, oh, man, something is just... You, sh you, sh that you ought to rejoice here. Um, it's like, it's natural to us. So you're going against something that's uh, written into our nature, he thinks. And so that, what that is, is it's a rejection of uh, charity. And so you're rejecting grace, you're rejecting the goodness of God, and you're withdrawing away. And so you're shutting off. Um, and um, so the structure that he establishes in his ethics for uh, the goal being union with God in which we rejoice and are happy. Uh, what Asadia does is it sort of reverses all of that. Um, and so what we have here is in some ways um, uh, a particular form of sin that cuts to the heart of a lot of what he's saying. Uh, and so, uh, but True to form, he distinguishes uh, some various varieties of this. And it's important to get this clear because um, there are situations in life that can make us feel sorrow, even at the good things that we've been blessed with, and even potentially at our connection with God. Um, and he picks up on Evagrius's discussion of, remember the monks, they're in the desert, super hot during the day. They haven't slept a lot. They haven't eaten. 
they're all alone, it's blazing hot. <laughs> and uh, those kinds of changes, if any of you have uh, spent time uh, in a, a really hot environment and don't drink a lot of water and don't eat a lot of food, you are irritable. It's just the way life, the, the way it is to have a human body. Uh, do any of you get hangry? We talk about that with our kids. They're, they're, they get angry because they're hungry and then you give them some food and it's like the world is fine. Um, so Aquinas is wanting to be sensitive to this. And so he's not wanting to judge everybody that feels this kind of sorrow. And so he says that there's uh, an excusable form of asadia if bodily changes or life circumstances make you feel this kind of sorrow. Um, maybe you didn't sleep very well and you've got to get up to go to mass and you're kind of like, oh, why do I have to do this? Uh, he's not saying that because you've thought that you're you're mortally sinful. <laughs> he's actually saying that there's there's a reason that there's a bodily change, um, and that makes this a more excusable for him. He says that the real problem is when you rationally endorse that thought, when you're like, "Oh yeah, God is really detestable," and the I'm out here in the desert, I'm hot, and it's not just that I'm unhappy because of these situations and I'm struggling with this. It's that I'm actually, I've reached the, I'm rationally saying God is not good. God is more evil. And uh, I feel this kind of horror and detestation. And so he says that that's the bad form. But uh, monks like Evagrius felt the this is the distinction between venial and mortal sin. The venial form is the bodily circumstantial sorrow. The mortal form is endorsing it and saying that God is really not good. God is actually evil. And uh, all of the blessings that I have in my life are actually not good at all. Um, and so those two forms of sorrow, um, he thinks, um, when we rationally endorse them are the real problems. And so how does this affect our behavior? How do we get into the the conversation about uh, laziness and whatnot. Um, Aquinas says that uh, this form of sorrow can cause a variety of things. Um, it can make you feel a kind of spiritual despair uh, where you feel like the good that could be out there is just unattainable. And so you give up because you're feeling so weighted down with the fact that the goodness isn't there. See, that's different than the endorsing, this is actually genuinely detestable. Uh, but there's a kind of despair that goes along. And if, uh, if you don't feel like the good is there to do, uh, you can just want to give up uh, wanting to do good things for anybody. But um, it can also have a couple other effects, which is interesting. Um, one is he says that it can make you feel sluggish but also not able to rest. Um, and what he means by this is that the things that you think will cure your sluggishness actually don't do it because the sluggishness is really caused by sorrowing at things that if you were to enjoy them would be enlivening. So sorrowing at God, sorrowing at God's good gifts uh, might make you run off and find all sorts of things to fill that void. Um, you think of uh, Augustine's famous line, our hearts are made for resting in God and they feel empty until we rest there. This is that sort of idea that uh, you're, you're choosing to run off after a, a nice steak that you haven't had for months uh, rather than realizing that, well, that, yeah, that genuinely the steak is good, but it won't last in my system for very long. And actually a deeper communion with God that lifts me up and satisfies me 
across time is actually more substantial. So you feel this sluggishness, but you run after the things that don't actually help you. So you, you, it's a perpetual sluggishness. Then you're never actually satisfied. Um, it can also make you, he thinks, uh, spiteful and bitter. And so this is one of the really interesting things about uh, this form of sorrow, because you can see it, I think, in uh, the way that uh, it affects leaders in the church. Uh, he's talking primarily about people in the church, but um, you can feel a weight of sorrow in your leadership position. You're having to bear other people's burdens. You're struggling with particular things in your own life. You're not really sure what's happening. Um, and the weight of that sorrow, plus the sense that um, you're having to help all of these other people, it makes you so overwhelmed uh, that you hate your job, you hate what you're doing, uh, and you want to get out of there. And so we talk a lot about clergy burnout. Uh, that's kind of uh, one of the ways in which it could happen, I think, in Aquinas. He doesn't have that sort of language, but he thinks it makes you spiteful about your job. It makes you really bitter. You can't see the good in what you're doing, and you can't see the good in your life. And it's just sort of overwhelming. Um, <laughs> he says that it can also make you wander. And this picks up on Evagrius's discussion as well. But, um, you, you wander after other things that you want to rest in, but again, that rest is not restored. So uh, there's the sluggish side, there's the wandering side. So he's picking up some of Evagrius's variety of effects, but he's trying to explain that they're all rooted fundamentally in this form of sorrow at the joy of charity. It's a sorrow at God and God's goodness. It's a sorrow at our participation in God and God's blessings. Um, and because of those things, we can't see the good, we can't do the good, and we might be sluggish, we might be hyperactive uh, <laughs> in, a, in a way, because we're just constantly seeking the next form of stimulation. We can also hate our life um, and uh, other things. And so that's the way that the I think Aquinas has tried to resolve this uh, difference. Um, and I'll just say really quickly, the contemporary folks that are picking up on Aquinas have seen that this general notion, which in his theology is more connected to leadership in the church, which makes sense given that he was writing to form Dominican priests to do their ministry. Um, it can affect people more broadly is what some of the contemporary discussion is trying to say. But um, some of our uh, struggles with a sense of general meaninglessness in life these days, contemporary scholars are saying this might have its roots in a kind of asadia about sorrowing at the things that we have that are good gifts, sorrowing at God so that we don't want to pursue that. And so we're not really sure what has meaning. Um, there's uh, this wandering uh, some folks have said that this could be seen in our culture's uh, predilection for novelty, wanting the next new thing, uh, that we, we can't ever quite rest in the goodness of what we have. We've got to have the next. Uh, and maybe that'll satisfy, but then it doesn't, and then you want the next. And so some people say maybe it's a, a, a kind of uh, pursuit of novelty that's a problem. Um, some say that what we've done in our in cultures is to elevate the, the notion of a kind of individual freedom from relationships or constraints more than actually valuing the good of our communities and relationships. Um, 
and as a result of that, there there can be a kind of a sadia that makes us bored, that we can't rest because we've understood what it is to be free and understand satisfaction in individualistic terms rather than in communal terms. Um, and because this problem of meaning might make us uh, realize that we're still unhappy, um, we might think that there's nothing of value much at all. Um, and so uh, that's, I think, some of the ways in which people have started to see that this is really not just a problem for monks. It's not just a problem for medieval priests. It actually could be in various forms throughout our culture, just labeled slightly differently. Um, and so uh, I think that's a really interesting suggestion. And so it'll be interesting to see what you make all of that. Uh, I saw a question in the chat about where can you find Aquinas' discussion of this? Um, it's in question 35 of the second part of the second part of the Summa. <laughs> so if you've ever looked at it, there's the Roman numerals. Uh, there's a Roman numeral one for the first part. There's a Roman numeral one and then a dash and then a Roman numeral two for the first half of the second part. And then there's a Roman numeral two and a dash and a, another Roman numeral two for the second half of the second part. Um, and it's question 35. Um, and so uh, it's in the middle of his discussion of the virtue of charity, which he thinks has um, various internal and external effects. And so, as I mentioned, it rejects the joy of charity, and, uh, especially with respect to yourself. And that's what uh, he says a sadia is. English translations render this as sloth. And so if you look it up in English translation, they'll say 2235 sloth. Uh, the next question is on envy. Um, and envy is a kind of sorrow at good, but it's sorrow at good for the neighbor. And so uh, asadia is sloth for yourself or sorrow for yourself. Uh, and so these are kind of connected uh, because you could see how feeling spite and bitterness could easily make you feel envious of somebody else that has a better, more fulfilling job uh, that makes you feel like, boy, they, they must be closer to the good. Um, and so you can see some of these uh, potential connections. And so uh, that's the contemporary conversation. And I'll just tell you a couple things that people have said about practices. So uh, one of the interesting things, and I mentioned that uh, uh, with Evagrius, Asadia is a problem because you can't contemplate God. And if that's what it is to be a monk, uh, you got to fix that problem. And, and so uh, he says that you have to be discerning because some, some bad thoughts you got to flee from. Others, you have to stay put. And so if you want to eat a lot, you've got to flee. Don't go to the kitchen. Uh, <laughs> don't be gluttonous. Stay in your cell. you got to flee there. Flee from the kitchen. Uh, if uh, a sadio makes you want to get out of the desert back home, you got to stay put. And so you have, you have to resist it. When it's, when it's telling you to go, you've got to stay. And when it's telling you not to contemplate, you've got to try. Uh, and so he gives some other advice, uh, which um, Aquinas picks up on as well. Uh, and so I'll, I'll talk a little bit about what Aquinas says. Um, I mentioned that Aquinas distinguishes the emotion of sorrow from the vice of Acadia, which is uh, the excessive form of this, or sor sorrow at the wrong things. Um, but the emotion can easily lead into, if you invest in it and rationally endorse it, it can really lead into the more vicious kind. So Aquinas uh, gives some nice advice. People usually like this. Um, he says, when you're feeling sorrowful, what do you do? 
sit in a nice warm bath, have a glass of wine, get a good night's sleep. And then when you're feeling good in the morning, try contemplating God. <laughs> but take care of yourself. Your body is important. Um, some of this is the bodily changes, the challenges. And if you um, go against that, it might actually reinforce the feeling of sorrow. And so, uh, obviously, he's very uh, temperate. And so, th these would all be within moderation. <laughs> have a warm bath, have a glass of wine. He doesn't say drink it all, the, the, the whole jug. Uh, but you can have some, it's like, when you feel sorrowful, try to have some fun. <laughs> it's, actually, it's actually really uh, good advice in a lot of ways. And then when you're feeling better, you can try contemplation and staying put. Because actually, uh, the Aquinas doesn't understand that it's the contemplation of God that you will find your true happiness. But it's hard to do that if you're feeling so sorrowful because you're really tired and you just really need to relax. Um, and so it, he doesn't say it quite this way, but it's like knowing your bodily strengths and weaknesses. Um, if you push yourself too hard, you can break. <laughs> and so be mindful of that, be prudent. Um, don't give yourself an easy pass uh, because that can also reinforce a kind of sluggishness. <laughs> but sometimes you just gotta have the glass of wine, you gotta have the bath. Um, and also with his understanding of spite um, being co connected to pressures at work, I think this is important too, to know some of the circumstantial factors, what causes you to feel stressed, what causes you to feel a kind of sorrow. Um, if you're not aware of it, you, you're often not, we use the language mindful now, you're not mindful of the things that are causing the problems. And if you're not aware of them, it's hard to address them. Um, and so understand some of your circumstantial factors. And when you get overwhelmed, pour yourself a glass of wine, sit in the bubble bath. Uh, and there we go. Um, and so uh, there's a, a variety of other things that people have said. Some contemporary scholars uh, have stressed uh, contemplating the incarnation and God's choice to be near us in the flesh. That This actually is a sign that what we have is a good thing that communities are good things, um, that uh, regularly participate in the Mass um, because we are united to God in the Eucharist and we can rejoice in God's goodness and presence with us here and now. Um, when you're criticized, try to thank God for a chance to, to grow rather than to feel like you're overwhelmed with self-loathing and doubt. Um, that's another thing that some people say. Um, and really to try to invest in your community, um, to welcome people that you might not know, things that get you out uh, doing things and then realizing that you can uh, show God's love in concrete ways and that that's actually important uh, are ways to sort of fight off that sense that a life of service is just pointless. Um, so there's a sense in which it all goes back to sometimes you got to stay <laughs> and you got to do it. And you also have to be prudent about when you need to flee into the bath with your glass of wine. <laughs> uh, so there.